When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to tell you my secret now. I see death. Silent train is people! No, I am the father of What's in the box? You Hi, this is another Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and this time around, we're going to be talking about Barb and Star, Go to Vista Del Mar, a movie that was released a while back, um, and it had sort of a long production history, which maybe we'll get into, and was supposed to come out in the summer of 2020, was then uh, put off until 2021, and has now come out on video only, which has turned out to be a real boon for this movie, and I think people are really responding to it, especially for, you know, the oddball and somewhat small-scale kind of movie that it is. Um, Joining me to talk about Barb and Star is Rachel Syme, a staff writer for The New Yorker. Hey, Rachel. Hey. Uh, so thanks for joining me for this one. I really was excited to talk about this one with you because you wrote something about it, a little review and appreciation of it for The New Yorker that I really loved mm-hmm. and that I felt really uh, tapped into some of the things that are special about this movie. I'm going to read a tiny bit of it back to you. Great. And maybe that can inspire our conversation. So this comes early in, in what you're writing about it when you talk about the transition from what I would think of as the the setup, the first 20 minutes or so, where we meet Barb and Star in their hometown of Soft Rock, Nebraska, and how it then um, it then transitions to the town of the title, Vista Del Mar in Florida. And so you write, there are solid jokes from the get-go, but it's not clear right away what the movie is up to. Our Wig and Mumolo, longtime denizens of Los Angeles, where they first met as part of the L.A. sketch comedy troupe The Groundlings, taking the piss out of flyover over 40s. Um, and then skipping ahead a bit is talking about the, the that transition, you say. But as Barb and Star unfolds, its quirky heroines feel less and less like stand-ins for a certain kind of T.J. Maxx shopper. Instead, the film goes for something far more specific and silly, loving and often lovely. Whereas so many comedies are either retreads of old ideas or feel designed by committee to hit newsy talking points, Barb and Star is the rare film that feels sui generis in both conceit and execution. Barb and Star are such finely drawn characters that they could be nobody else but themselves. So that really spoke to me and exactly what I love about this movie. And this yeah. is how I was, I guess, going to frame it to you is that this movie gets compared a lot to Bridesmaids, which, of course, was written by the uh, the co-writers and co-stars of this movie, Annie Mumolo and Kristen Wiig. Yep. Um, and another movie that sprung to mind was Spy, which is this wild sort of uh, spoof of James Bond films that's also a female friendship bonding movie with incredible performances by Melissa McCarthy and Rose Byrne. I love both Bridesmaids and Spy, but I found this movie far more original than either one and in a way more exciting. I mean, I can see why Bridesmaids changed comedy history. It's an important movie. It's still a very funny movie. But this sui generis quality that you point to, I think, is is so much more vibrant in this movie, which really could only have come out of the imaginations of these two women who are friends in real life. It's definitely stranger than any other sort of female-driven comedy I've seen in a long time. Um, The joke to me feels like a joke that two friends make together late at night 
after a couple of glasses of wine or, a, you know, a hit of really good joint. And then it just continues to build and build. And it, you know, these characters kind of feel lived in and loved on the way that you might a kind of like running bit that you would do with your best friend over the years. And, you know, you have a sense that they understand exactly who these characters are. It, I was worried, like I said in the review, when I first started watching it, that it was going to be a kind of lampooning of um, sort of Midwestern 40-something, 50-something flyover, uh, you know, mall denizen mom culture. You know, they, they love culottes and capri pants. I thought it might be kind of like a lambasting of the sort of basicness of the Midwestern mom or something, but it actually turns out that these characters aren't basic at all. They're incredibly quirky, strange. They never do what you think they're going to do. Absolutely unexpected, uh, materialistic, but also thrifty. Like there's so many things about the characters that are just only these characters. Like I've never seen this trope before in the world, except that it does kind of draw on. Um, a kind of woman that you don't often see on on in films, and definitely not as the main comedic leader of the film, which is just middle-aged women. Right, and that freedom that you feel in the comic relationship between Annie Mumo and, and Kristen Wiig, I feel like it echoes into the, the characters. I mean, you believe in the characters' friendship because you believe in where these writers are going to take you. And there's a really nice analogy for that early in the movie that you also write about that I think also for me was the moment I really fell in love with the movie, which is this story they make up on the airplane to, oh, to Trish. Lisa Mar about Trish. Can you talk about Trish? Sure. So... Barb and Star. Barb, by the way, who Annie Mamola plays, her name is just Barb. Star, who Kristen Wood plays, her name is short for Starbra. A little joke that I think is incredibly funny that Barb is not short for Barbara, but Star is short for Starbra. Right, it's awesome. <laughs> because of their kind of improvisational, overlapping yes. style, there's so many jokes that get buried. And if you watch it again and listen to a different person, you'll hear a different joke. They live together in house. They're roommates in this house. They also are co-workers at the Jennifer Convertible store, which if you don't remember, it was this sort of now defunct chain that uh, sold like sort of pleather love seats. And um, they find out that Jennifer Convertibles has gone bankrupt, but their store was the last to know and nobody told them. So they, they, they find this out on the same day that they have this women's group that meets at their house um, run by a kind of dictatorial uh, fascistic leader played by Vanessa Bayer in an incredibly funny little cameo. And um, they just feel lost. They've lost their jobs. They're both single. Uh, I think what we we learned is that um, Star is a divorcee and um, her husband Carmine Testaviglio left her. And Barb is a widow. And so they are um, sort of Sans men, sans inspiration, and sans what uh, Star ends up calling their sparkle, something that they've lost along the way, their sort of youthful, adventurous spirit. They run into a friend who has just come back from Vista Del Mar, where she she says something like, it's like this place for like middle-aged people to party. Like, she says something like, you can just like rock a... What is it that that she says about... Vista Del Mar, that is so funny. Something like it's a place you can like wear a statement necklace to the pool. It's something with a lot of jewelry. Yeah. Um, like you can wear Chico's to the pool type thing. So they decide to go on this impromptu vacation to get on a flight to Vista Del Mar, Florida. Now they're on this flight and along the way they are bored on the plane. 
and they start telling each other a story about a fantasy woman because they both discover that though they've been friends for years, they did not know each other's favorite name in the world. First name was Trish, which is just funny to me because who, who romanticizes the name Trish? They do. You know, that reminds me the other day I said to myself, I cannot think of a famous actress named Trish. You're kidding. That's my favorite name. What? Mine too. How have we never talked about this? Um, and they start coming up with the, this idea of a person named Trish and why that person is so funny to them and so beloved. And it's like these incredibly specific jokes. Like Trish is a woman who loves the holidays. Like, you know, Christian would go, Trish at Christmas? Forget it. To me, a woman named Trish is a woman you can count on. Really has her act together. Athletic, natural. Just real natural. And loves the holidays. She'd be out with her girlfriends. Country dancing. Well, she has a natural sense of rhythm. <laughs> She'd have one ear double pierced and the other just single. Once when I was applying for a job at Talbot's, I told him my name was Trish. <laughs> well, remember when I was <laughs> and then and and then they finally they're just building it up. And the thing that makes this so funny is that like Wig and Mumolo, A never break, B go on way too long. Like one of the things that I love about this movie is it's not afraid to extend a joke past when it gets funny, go around the horn, come back again, and keep beating it until it becomes absolutely hilarious. And the Trish thing is like that. So it's like you think the Trish thing is done like four times, but it's not done. Trish loses one of her ears in a twister, but not her hearing. She's a storm chaser. Her mom does not want her to be. Well, their relationship is tough. Mm. Trish has always wanted to be a portrait photographer. She loves people. She would always say, a person's face is a lot about how they look. Oh, that's beautiful. And then finally, they're still talking about Trish after the flight and they're like she has cancer and she decides she's gonna just like die in a valiant sort of Thelma and Louise way and then she said you know what skin cancer you are not gonna take me because I'm gonna take my own life and she did she jumped off that cliff near her house on the cape dove right into the water hitting every rock on the way and now there's a beautiful spirit out there in the ocean and they're like staying on the escalator in the airport and they've worked themselves in such a frenzy about Trish. It's Trish! <laughs> it's just so funny to me because because to me, that's when I knew that the movie, like in the in the sort of old sense of the the phrase, like it was then that the movie carried me, because I knew that they I was in good hands because that a joke that specific can only be done by people that really know their characters, know what they're doing, and understand the stakes. Um, and then I was like, I get it. I'm in good hands. Completely agree. I'm always a sucker for the joke that wraps along around and goes on far too long. And it also becomes kind of a metaphor for what the movie itself is about to do, right? I mean, the movie itself is just about to break as many rules as they did in their strange co-fantasy invention of Trish on the plane. Because as we'll see, you know, we have moments of it bursting into a Hollywood-style musical, and we have talking animals, and we have all kinds of things that suddenly put this this world into a cartoon-like universe. That was one of my notes while watching it the first time, actually, is that it it borrows a lot of things from the world of comic strips and cartoons, not in the sense that it, you know, seems to be adapted after any one comic strip. In fact, it's wildly original in that way. But, you know, when we get to talking about the villain and, you know, about these moments of animation that pop in, there's something, there's something very anything goes in the universe of this movie where you don't feel that the reality has been seriously torn asunder just because there's suddenly a talking crab. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it's just the coloration of the film, too, has this kind of subtle technicolor quality. Um, 
you know, Barb and Star are dressed in various shades of fruit punch and lemonade and fuchsia and cantaloupe and lime green. Um, you know, the, the, sh- the colors are all kind of like garish, uh, you know, Chico's catalog summer resort collection type colors. So it has a really fun palette that feels cartoony. And there are little moments all along the way. I mean, I'm sure we'll get to them, but like, I think of this one moment in which Kristen Wiig has like sort of like feels dizzy and she shakes her head and it sounds like the tinkling in a cartoon, like when a cartoon character sort of shakes their head and it turns out that that sound that plays when she shakes her head is somebody's cell phone ring tone, but it feels like it was in, it's sort of like diegetic sound that was meant to make it seem like they're living in a cartoon, but then it was explained to her by this ringtone. And there are little jokes like that all along the way that heighten it to the level of sort of a cartoon meets reality. Who's afraid of Roger Rabbit type heightened sort of um, Looney Tunes reality, but then also reminds you that it's supposed to be taking place in the real world too. So it's just this funny um, juxtaposition that they constantly are playing with. Yeah, actually, that's a, a joke right out of Mel Brooks, right? I mean, yeah. the idea that a sound that you think is is in the, in the soundtrack is actually happening at that moment, the jingle of her head, it happens in Blazing Saddles, actually, and there's another joke like that. We haven't talked about the villainous yet, and we'll get there, but remember when she trains the mice to play in the orchestra, and then suddenly oh, they're right. scoring the scene? You think there's some sort of like a dramatic evil swelling strings, but it's actually she's trained these mice to be a little orchestra. Yeah, I, I think there are smart touches like that all along the way. And maybe we can bring up the villain now because since we're sort of going through the plot, alongside Barb and Star heading to Florida, something else is happening with regards to Vista Del Mar, which is that this woman um, whose name is Sharon Gordon Fisherman in the cast list. um, And um, although she's hardly named on screen, right? She's just sort of the imminent villain. She's hardly named. Yeah. She's just sort of an ambiguous villain. She's played by Kristen Wiig. She is this kind of albino, sort of very pale woman with dark, dark black bob, very severe hair, wears only white clothes. It's very much like a, a sort of a Mugatu from Zoolander type exaggerated villainess. Right. Zoolander's a good reference. Yeah, yeah she's fantastically yeah. styled, by the way. Fantastically styled. And I didn't recognize Kristen right. Wiig for some time because she also has some kind of toothpiece in, I think. She has different teeth than, than Kristen Wiig's. Yeah, she does not look like herself. She has um, a henchman and she also has a uh, boyfriend who serves as her sort of number two, played by Jamie Dornan, who um, she has enlisted to help her carry out a plot. Uh, against the town, entire town of Vista Del Mar, where later we find out that she grew up and was terribly bullied and has a kind of carry Stephen King-like experience as a, as a teenager and now has just decided that she shall have her vengeance on the entire town of Vista Del Mar, Florida. Um, and her plan involves... But I just have to add that her, her carry like moment of humiliation involves her being shot out of a cannon while wearing a shrimp crown. <laughs> So the flashback that we see is both traumatic and hilarious. Yeah, for like Miss the Shrimp Queen contest. And also she can't be friends with anyone in town because she's like, you know, terribly pale. And so she cannot be in the sun in in Florida, which means that she's ostracized socially. So her plan involves unleashing a swarm of deadly killer 
genetically modified mosquitoes on this entire town. And Jamie Dornan is going to help her in that plot. As a, He's hoping that the result of him helping her carry out this scheme is that they will be a quote-unquote official couple at last, which is, their, I guess, their dating. And his dream is that they will be an official couple. A joke that becomes so long-running throughout the movie that again, it goes just like way too far, and you're like, how many times can they say the line "official couple"? And then by the by the twentieth <laughs> time you hear it, you're like on the floor laughing. Like I can't not laugh now when I think about official couple. Official couple is brilliant. It's one of my favorite jokes. I feel like I texted all my friends afterwards. Like, are we an official couple? Like I texted all my friends. Like, and wait, one more thing on official. There's also an emotional payoff to official couple because of the moment that Kristen Wiig finally says it to him and means it, right? And she doesn't know I he's know, had that obsession. I love, I love that payoff. I know. So, so yeah, it's so good. So he wants to be with her, and um, she clearly is very uh, indifferent, if not downright re- sort of issuing a rejection. So there's a lot of tension there. So. That's just one. So that's the dynamic. There's this whole other sort of subplot going on with the mosquito attack. Arvin Starland and Vista Del Mar, they're having a great time. Um, the first thing that happens when they get there, and this is another thing where you're saying it kind of changes genre immediately, is that they get to their hotel, which turns out to not be their hotel, although they end eventually end up getting a room there when there's a vacancy, which is like amazing sort of middle-aged grotto where you can always have air conditioning and iced tea and, you know, everything is just perfect for you. And it becomes a kind of Busby Berkeley musical number. And they're singing and dancing and high kicking and synchronized swimming and all kinds of choreography that just comes out of nowhere. But for some reason, it doesn't feel shoehorned in to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing I think that this movie managed to do in a somewhat miraculous way. I would actually like to see the screenplay to figure out how it builds this. But this feels like a unified story with integrity, right? It doesn't feel like a Saturday Night Live style movie with a bunch of funny skit ideas kind of loosely tied together. But as we describe it, it seems almost impossible that it could not be like that as it switches from, you know, suburban satire to musical number and later it will become this kind of spy spoof. And it seems like that would just feel like a bundle of unrelated sketches. But I really felt a through line, not just with the friendship of the two women, but but also with the villain story. Yeah, <laughs> the villain I mean, story I had some emotional involvement. The worldview that these women have, and that remains consistent, which is that Barb and Star sort of, even from the very beginning, when we see them sitting in their couch in Jennifer Convertibles, just talking away about everything on Earth, have an incredible amount of optimism about the world, um, a kind of naivete but at the same time they're not yokels from nowhere they they are you know flesh and blood women who have sexual desire and desire for adventure and for their life to change but they have a kind of goofball happy vibe around them that seems to lead to all these fantastical things happening and I think one of the reasons that it doesn't feel like just a series of SNL sketches together into a film is that the logic of Barb and Star's sort of worldview never changes, which is that it's kind of like the world could be magical and so it is. Right. And at the end, we'll talk about the very ending, but they they honestly just manifest that magic magic in the world, right? By yeah. way of um, Deus Ex Machina. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's this thing where I started out being like, this is too sunny by half. This is goofy. And then by the end, I was like, I need to go back to the beginning and rewatch it because my serotonin needs this like there there's something about how <laughs> i just continually feel like i want to live inside the world that Kristen and Anne created in this movie which is just like one of complete hope 
um, and joy. So yeah, I, I find that to be very consistent. So anyways, they become, they finally get a place in this hotel. Everything is going great. Um, and then they meet up with Edgar, who is this Jamie Jordan character one night and they all get to drinking and end up with this hilarious kind of like menage a trois drunken evening. <laughs> Every little detail in the film to me, it's like, there's just, you notice it everywhere. The more you watch it, the more this movie gives you. I find it's one of those comedies that you could rewatch like 10 times and every time notice something totally different because they put little subtle visual jokes in every scene. There's a scene in which they're packing and they shove a bunch of stuff into a suitcase and they're narrating it, but there's items in the suitcase that they put in there that are not even narrating. And if you go back and watch it like five times, every time you see something so <laughs> funny that they put in their suitcase. Like, you know, the packing is great. Go go ahead. What are some? Yeah, no, I mean, full on like ceramic cookie jars, uh, frozen meals from an REI, like a chain <laughs> of rope for no reason. Like, but the rope, there's a payback with the rope when they get tied up with it, right? Yes, it's Chekhov's yes, rope. Absolutely. But it is very funny, the packing. And then, you know, I think the same thing about like when they're walking on the boardwalk in Vista Delure, all of the little shops have names. And all the names are beach puns, the kind that only like a dad could come up with. Um, it's it's like there's little things all throughout the film. And like this is a fully fleshed out world in these women's mind. Rachel, I'm going to stop our conversation just for a moment for a word from this week's sponsor. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, back to our conversation. Right. And about that, that first wild night they have, I just I wanted to talk about the morning after shot that is both a extremely hilarious and b just I think so prototypical of the the great kind of polymorphous perversity of this movie that even though it is parodying this very particular kind of repressed uh, woman, or, or, you know, I guess a stereotype of a repressed woman, these women are not at all repressed. And this movie is incredibly kinky in its way and really welcoming of, you know, whatever experience of desire they want to have um, in their in their adventures in Vista del Mar. And when they wake up the next morning, right? I mean, the, the sh that shot of them—it's right out of silent comedy. It's just—it's a—it's a purely visual joke. So we've got—I think it's Kristen Wiig on the bottom, then Jamie Dornan in the middle, and then Emmy, Annie Mumolo on top. It's really clear that they've all spent the night together. Yeah. But they have again a kind of almost cartoonish, kind of comical look, and then there's this very long take of them all sort of with their eyes darting in different directions, trying to figure out who's on top of them and remembering everything that happened. And it is just so funny, and it's adult without being dirty, like there's this great way that this movie is sort of raunchy but clean spirited at the same time well yeah i mean i think that it's 
attitude towards sex is incredibly refreshing and wonderful and game and funny. I mean, there's never any judgment about any of the sex that's had in this movie. That's what I love. And no, no, there's no like pathologizing of, Oh, can a woman over 40 have an active raunchy sex life? You know, that's not even a question that comes into the mind. It's like, Oh, we had a three way another Tuesday, you know? It's kind of like, right. <laughs> it, it's not even talking about it like you're bad again. Or when, you know, and since this is a spoiler, I guess I can say spoiler, uh, Kristen Wiig starts having her own sort of private um, fling infatuation with Edgar. I mean, they're having sex everywhere. It's incredibly acrobatic. You know, in the middle of conversation, she'll just be like, Edgar, I need you inside me. But it's like goofy. It's not, you know, it's, there's something about it that feels so like brandy in like an old school like slapstick sense it's like fully embodied and fully game and then on top of that it's 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 really like you know the sexual elements of the movie are just sort of footnotes compared to what the movie is trying to say about friendship and longevity of of not only just um, relationships that you have with your friends, but with yourself and with reinvention and, and aging and not losing your sort of spontaneity and your shimmer. I mean, those are um, the bigger themes of the film. I like that sex becomes kind of like a, a, a subconscious or a subtitle and not, not the main thrust of the movie. Right. It's one of the vectors of their self-realization mm-hmm. at their, on their Florida resort, but it's by no means the main one, right? I mean, the main one really is, I think, just them connecting to freedom or desire of any kind, including right. that great day, just the montage of the day that Annie Mumolo's character, Barb, has just out on the trail and walking over coals. What is some of the right. stuff that yeah, she does so, on her so, crazy so, day so out? often it goes on, they kind of have their own separate adventures. Um, you know, Star goes off to have this affair with Edgar, which is its own kind of excitement because she's been alone and wants that kind of romance. Um, Barb, who is looking kind of for more of self-realization, goes off on her own sort of journey while Annette Funicello's Pineapple Princess plays, which is just about the most joyful song on the face of the earth. And she's like hang gliding while smoking pot. She's um, trying out surfing in a wave pool She's riding a motorcycle without having shaved her armpit. She's having a blast. <laughs> she runs into a hilarious cameo from um, Garcia, who's playing the Tommy Bahama, who is kind of a, a, a sort of oracle in this world. I mean, Tommy Bahama is, in every other way, just a brand that makes Hawaiian shirts for men to go on vacation and wear. But in this world, there is a Tommy Bahama and he is played by Andy Garcia and Barb encounters him kind of out in the bush and they have a conversation about, you know, living for yourself. Uh, It's so funny. Also, it just is such a wink. I I think I put this in my review, but Andy Garcia has in like the last few years become kind of like a sex symbol to like a certain kind of middle-aged wine, wine loving Chardonnay drinking lady of some taste who just like, thinks Andy Garcia is just the handsomest man to ever live. And so it it is such a funny nod to that proclivity that they got him for this role. 
So it's true. This is the third role I can think of where he has essentially spoofed that kind of, you know, Latin lover persona of his yeah. late middle age. Um, he did it in Mamma Mia 2. He did it in that Diane Keaton comedy. I know. I think he's really feeling it. Um, and so, yeah, there's little jokes like that all along the way. I mean, we haven't even talked about the other musical number. Speaking of jokes, that is Jamie Dornan's number, which, you know, again, I just didn't no, Jamie Dornan had it in him, but there's something about the world of this movie that invites people to play and be completely silly. And he sings this song because he's still lamenting that he cannot be in an official couple with the villainess. And it is sung in To the Seagulls of the Beach about his sorrow <laughs> of being a single person. And there are high kicks involved and pirouettes. I think the body double is clearly doing it, but it is just so funny. You don't care. There are stag leaps and split leaps. And it is truly comic gold. I laughed so hard during Seagulls in the Sand. Can you hear my prayer? Burning like my blood's in a pan on a stove And it's heating me up to the max So I'm running my legs just as fast as I can To the left, to the right I'm a frustrated man Now I'm flicking my tiptoes to kick up the sand Cause I can't understand all this fire that's raging inside me Seagulls in the sand, can you hear my prayer? Oh, oh my God, utterly. I think we need a little sidebar here on Jamie Dornan because this is a movie about and by two women. And I love that it's completely their story and the story of their friendship and that, you know, the the, the hot young guy that one of them hooks up with at the beach is not the focus. But Jamie Dornan is so much more than the hot young guy they hook up with at the beach in this movie, both in his performance and in the writing of his character. He's this really sort of unusual, vulnerable character, right? He's a villain, uh, not by choice, but by, you know, because he's enchained in love to this terrible villainess who's trying to get him to destroy this whole town and so he has that moral conflict he the just whole time. wants to have an official girlfriend right yeah he, he does it all out of just uh you know just just desire to be with his love and it says my love when her name comes up on his phone which i also absolutely adored but what brilliant casting of jamie Too dornan funny. in this right i mean the 50 shades of gray you know the, the sort of i've only seen one of those movies but the the steely gaze and i mean all of that stuff is completely gone he's this very vulnerable man who his, yeah. He is in no way mocked by the screenplay um, for falling in love with this older woman who he seems to have nothing whatsoever in common with, right? I mean, their love is taken in a way very seriously. And then he just reveals these incredible comic and musical chops where I really feel like, and I think you may have said this in your review too, so it's kind of a career-changing role for him. I certainly think of him in a completely different way. Oh, me too. I mean, Damon Wayans Jr., for example, who just has a small cameo as a spy who cannot keep his own secrets. And every time I see the movie, Darley Bunkle, that's his character, it gets funnier to me. Like, there's a line when he's he's trying to call Jamie Dornan on, like, a closed line, but he's let his, like, color ID come up. And Jamie Dornan's like, is this your number? And he just goes, damn it. And the way he says it is, like, the funniest way anyone could have done that line reading. So they got some people that are just naturally hands, but Jamie Dornan was such a brilliant and inspired casting because that's just not his way, although I did think I did put in my review that it was just his first intentionally comedic role because obviously Fifty Shades is like a camp classic that everybody goes to to kind of bask in the ridiculousness of that movie and 
you know, the can't, you know, whether or not they're playing it straight is really, um, there's a thin line there. So obviously I think Jamie Dornan could do comedy and we all know that, but the fact that this is like clearly a role where he is stretching his legs, I like Jamie Dornan host of SNL when, you know what I mean? Like I, I think so <laughs> funny and game. And one of the things I really love about this is that, you know, because this is a movie written by women, I, I kind of just like love all the things that they make men do in it. Like there's a certain kind of power in being like, and now you will do spins and now you will be, you know, he's almost kind of like clearly doing exactly what Annie and, and, and Kristen had in mind for him. And there's something about it that just feels so wonderful because, you know, I don't know. He's, it's, it's, you rarely see comedies in which like a man is the supporting character and also the most vulnerable and also the kind of punchline rather than leading, leading the movie. Right. Yeah. He has a punchline at times in a very affectionate way, but he is often yeah. sort of playing, playing the fool in his scenes. And also, I don't know if you noticed at the end in the credits, but the lyrics to both of these songs, the Busby Berkeley style, Welcome to the Hotel number, and this Climbing a Palm Tree with Jamie Dorman, Dorman song is um, are written by Annie Mumolo and Kristen Wiig. So, you know, he really was literally performing their words and their song as he as he sings. And I wrote yeah, a couple I mean, notes. Seagull on a tire. Can you hear my prayer? Keep on trying, but I'm getting nowhere. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, my God. It's truly so funny. And I mean... There are just so many moments where they make these smart choices. For example, before Edgar fully commits to Star, he and Barb go on a date um, without Star knowing, and then later Star and he go on a date without Barb knowing, and they both enact these hilarious alibis when they're trying to explain to each other where they were when they were on a date with Edgar, Barb and Star, and they both come up with this concept that they met a turtle in separate <laughs> occasions, stars like I met a turtle on the beach. I followed it to its house. And then <laughs> Barb was taking a bath and she's like, and I met a turtle in the bath. And there's something about them both deciding that the best way to make up a lie is that they were with a turtle being the absolute dumbest and best way they could have handled that joke. <laughs> Just, you know, the idea of them getting on a banana boat is a running joke throughout the show. There's um, a real-life lounge singer named Richard Cheese, who is a kind of jokey lounge act who sings sort of lewd and lascivious lounge songs, who is the lounge singer at the Sister Del Mar Hotel, and he comes up over and over as a recurring character. Another note on him, on, on the pianist, is that they wrote those songs, too. <laughs> they wrote those songs about, I love boobies, I love gazongas, or whatever he's singing as they go to the bar. Oh my god, or there's one where he's just like, some friends I had from high school have recently passed. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you singing about something from a cop? And there's that crab that appears out of nowhere in the sand. He keeps in the voice of Morgan Freeman that claims his name is Morgan Freeman with a D and is clearly a crab that has had the life experiences of Morgan Freeman, which is just an completely genuinely odd and who knows where that came from <laughs> idea. I mean, that truly sounds like something that somebody had had in their pocket for 20 years and had always wanted to use and then finally just put it in the movie. I mean, 
so many moments of this movie have that feeling of like they may have had this joke in their pocket for years or or just at least like we're looking for a moment to use that pun or that that put in that kind of a nod to like Barbara Streisand and Barry Gibb, like the, the little henchman kid, like lost that record. Like who, where did that come from? And you can only guess that like, you know, one night Chris and Wig was listening to it and was like, this record is insane. I have to use it for something someday. And I think so many parts of this movie feel like that, like finally getting to use your best material. And that to me is the real joy of watching it. Because you're seeing them fire on all cylinders, and what that means is that they've kind of had a plan for this movie. You know, if not if not in actuality, then kind of in a dream world where they can just put in whatever joke they want. Right. I mean, it, it's really it says something about where film comedy is is at right now that 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 feels so unusual, right? And that even really highly praised and successful comedies like Bridesmaids that we're talking about come from a recognizable genre, or you know, they they're they're maybe spoofing like Spy is spoofing James Bond. Or well, and I love Bridesmaids, and I think there's some weird parts of that movie. I mean, everything Melissa McCarthy is doing is unexplainable. I mean, it's very much in the line of what we're talking right. about. I mean, her character with the, with the puppies and everything, but yes, the, the sitting in the streets to have a diarrheal accident and a wedding dress feels like <laughs> classic gross out comedy right. that we've seen before, or, you know, certain kinds of slapstick beats that that movie has feel recognizable. This feels so strange and, and has no rhythm that I've ever experienced before. And it reminded me of these great cult comedies. I think I put this in my review, but of comedies that maybe at the time are not seen as as great or, you know, anything beyond kitsch, but they sort of accrue this cult following over time as people's favorite movie because of the fact that they just completely are are so original and keep rewarding you with multiple viewings and their stuff you didn't notice the first time. I mean, I'm thinking of say like an Austin Powers or something, even though that was an immediate hit, obviously, but I think that kind of movie got that, that sort of beloved following where you quoted and everything seems so strange. And it was like Mike Myers knew that genre of 1960s spy film so well that it was just, absolutely at the zenith of what he wanted to do and to create. I mean, same thing with something like, you know, a Josie and the Pussycats, which is now getting a big critical revival. I think when you look back at that movie, everything Parker Posey is doing in it is absolutely off the map. And there are great jokes in that movie and people have started to sort of revive it or say the work of Christopher Guest or something like this, where it's these movies that are kind of little cult comedies because you can quote them excessively and they become a part of your world. And I think, in my review, I quoted a tweet from a comedian called Joel Kimbusa who said that he hopes little kids watch Rock and Star and Sleepover and only one of them gets it and later says that it kind of explained their worldview. And that's kind of how I feel about the best comedies, which is that not everyone's going to get it. Like I showed, I, I was very effusive about Rock and Star on Twitter when I first saw it and that some people watched it and had tepid responses to it or sent me a tweet being like, that wasn't so good. I didn't get it. And part of me was like, I'm so happy that you didn't. Because for those of us that did get it, like it's, I'm gonna rewatch this every year. Like movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've already seen it twice since it came out, and I, I feel like it's it's also, as you say, something that would be absolutely a pleasure to see in a big theater with with people all around you. I could imagine it having sort of a Rocky Horror Picture Show style cult following, where you could bring things to throw at the oh, screen, culottes. The the only sadness was that I didn't get to see it for the first time in a big theater surrounded by people because it's. 
one of those films that deserves it. It deserves a group of people seeing it at midnight showing and losing their minds. Um, and it's not, it will never have that for the first time. I hope they, they do a re-release at some point or that it becomes a kind of staple. I could see it becoming kind of a staple repertory um, theater where they show sort of fun, silly comedies. And I could see it becoming part of that rotation that people get really excited about seeing in the room with other people. Because there are so many little things that I think will reward that kind of dedicated following. For sure. So having followed Barb and Star through their six-day adventure at Vista Del Mar, um, we haven't talked that much about the uh, the encroaching evil plan of, what's her name again? Oh, Sharon right. Golden Fisherman, the, the evil Kristen Wiig character. Yes. Um, she is continuing her machinations to um, to bust up the, what is it called? The Seafood Jam, the, uh, the town's annual yes, celebration. Yes, I think it's called the, the Seafood Jam and the, the Shrimp Queen crowning. And this, of course, was the event where she was ritually humiliated all those years before as a teenager. And so she now plans to get revenge by releasing these deadly genetically modified mosquitoes on the crowd. And we have this kind of an action sequence ending, but one that I think has a lot of of great differences from your standard action sequence ending um, where, well, we'll get we'll get to uh, exactly how Barb and Star get themselves out of it. But do you have anything to observe about, you know, this this 10 minutes or so at the end of, you know, um, of spy pursuit. You know, it actually has a little bit of an Austin Powers feel to it. They get tied up and, um, Barb and Star get tied up by the Jamie Dornan character and they find a way to get out of it. And really great editing in that sequence, by the way, the editing of the sequence where they're escaping from ropes. It's a sort of, uh, wonderful use of physical comedy. Every time he turns around, they're in a different sort of twister position. They just contorted their body to make it look like, but trying to act very natural about it. That's just a funny part of it. There's there's a couple chase scenes and bombastic things that happen. But really, like you were saying, the film is all leading up to the very last moment, which is that the mosquitoes, um, there's sort of a homing beacon for where the mosquitoes are going to be drawn to and I guess it had been planted on the main stage of this event but then Bob and Stars were to take it and they decide they're going to like take it into the ocean on a jet ski to save the whole town and they do this um, and in doing so Sharon Gordon Fisherman is also involved when they have a showdown in the deep water and ultimately she gets sort of horribly bombarded by the Medillaness gets bombarded by the mosquitoes that she herself created and Barb and Star go underwater to avoid the mosquito attack and in doing so they are sort of drowning. Can I just say I love their underwater conversation done entirely in, in subtitles <laughs> and the idea that they know each other so well they can just communicate underwater with their I know, eyes. They're, they're just looking at each other going like this is it this is the end we're really gonna die this time and then it's all done in subtitles it's like a silent film comedy honestly and then they have this truly inspired sequence in which their life flashes before their eyes and they see various jokes. It's, it's what makes it so brilliant is that it allows you to relive a lot of the jokes from the movie. It's almost like having a greatest hits scene at the end of the movie with that, but it's done in line with the character thinking. So it's not, doesn't, again, it doesn't feel like an SNL sort of shoehorned in best of clips. It's just like they're replaying all these funny moments, but it's also there's absurdist moments. Like they mentioned so briefly sometime earlier in the movie that, that Kermit the Frog needed his legs when he rode <laughs> bicycle, and so that 
That's, that's why Barb doesn't ever eat frogs. Like then right before she dies, like what flashes before her mind, but Kermit on a bicycle. <laughs> like there's something very, like every little joke is brought back. And then of course they're magically saved and born back to the shore on a kind of wonderful wave that sort of brings them back and they don't end and it's magical. And I, I guess this is the big spoiler of it all, but do you want to say what it was to them back to the shore? <laughs> well, yeah. So you think that they're being brought back. I didn't know if they were being brought back by, um, you know, possibly that they were standing on a submarine or one of those classic old kind of gags. But it seems like they're riding on the back of a mermaid played by Reba McIntyre named, uh, named Trish. It's so Trish. this is my manifestation point from earlier on. I mean, they made Trish come to be, right? Their story made Trish come to be. I know. They say, what did you it was Trish. Trish is a magical sea spirit that just said, loves a good time. And it's played by Reba McIntyre, who apparently had no idea what she was signing up for, just showed up as a as a good time gal that she is and filmed this scene and has been a since a, a giant promoter of this movie. Like Reba McIntyre is tweeted about Barbie Star like a hundred times. Oh my god, I didn't know her. that. That's so good. She just loves that she was in it. I mean she has the good-hearted nature of Trish within her. So, I, and I and I feel like it was so perfect that Reba played that role because there's something about Reba that who would be a hero to Barb and Star, her sort of love of life, her sort of being Reba, you know. Um, so it just seemed like this perfect ending. So yes, Trish, Trish saves the day. They end up, you know, Edgar and and Star end up getting into their official relationship. And then the villainess reappears. The villainess actually survives. She survives, but ultimately all she wants in the world is a friend. And then everyone offers to be her friend. So, you know, it's this incredibly good-hearted ending. And they all end up just being buddies and getting on a banana boat and, and having an adventure. And it's the most sort of soft, like, downy landing for a comedy. Like, there's no, nobody dies, nobody's truly maimed or harmed everybody's just kind of getting along at the end drinking a boat drink enjoying their life in the sun and yet it doesn't feel hokey it, it just feels like oh i want to just slip into the world of this movie where everyone is happy <laughs> i think you're really right too in pointing out that this movie wound up being the perfect pandemic movie despite itself right i mean what doesn't it have it, it gives us all the experiences that we can't have stuck inside it came out in the dead of winter when it would have been even more welcome right with this kind of tropical world it takes us to yeah but it also just seems like it belongs it belongs in the pandemic hall of fame for some reason and you have to help me understand why. Like I feel like when I look back at movies that um that came out during this time that are associated with this time this will always be one. And yet why when they're the opposite of claustrophobic? Yeah, because I think it felt I think I I think I called it something like a lime daiquiri of a film and that's exactly what it felt like to me. Like it felt like being on vacation when I can't go anywhere and not taunting me or not feeling like oh haha you can't can't leave your house right now and go to Florida. It was more like let me gently take your hand and as much as I can, you know, help you disassociate from whatever's going on in your life, you know, bring you to a better, more brilliantly colored world. And at the same time, I think, yeah, it has a kind of pandemic MVP quality because everybody just really needed a laugh. And it's not invested in much more than making you laugh. You know, I think, yes, it has some bigger things to say about friendship and sexuality over 40 and, you know, loyalty to your person and all, all of these bigger themes. But what it really is trying to say is that it's trying to be funny. 
and that it's trying to be lighthearted and take you out of yourself for a while. And if anything, that's what people needed yeah. during the pandemic. I mean, I found I found that I didn't want to watch anything about the pandemic. I didn't want to watch anything sort of depressing. A lot of my viewing of movies this last year has either been, you know, new comedies like this that I felt like were really hitting or um, revisiting sort of old comfort shows and comedies and movies that just make me feel hopeful and, you know, doesn't compound everything going on in the world. Obviously you don't want to turn away from it, but that's why I think of this as kind of an MVP because I think it would have been powerful as a comedy had it come out last summer in a different timeline where none of this ever happened. But I think it actually strangely had the best reception and the, and the best sort of um, voyage out during the pandemic. And I think that's why they chose to go forward with it because I think they had a hunch that that would be so. Well, Rachel, I think we've reached the end, unfortunately, of the movie and of the spoiler special. I'm really glad I got to talk about this one with you. It's striking to me the extent to which we found the exact same things funny. I feel like very one of us kind of Trish story creating about this movie because every joke you specifically cited was one that I wrote down a note of how much I laughed at it. So um, thank you for making me see this movie. Actually, it's because of you that I, I made sure to go out of my way and see it. And I hope listeners will too. Thank you for having me, Dana. Bye. So that's our show for today. You can subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like our show, please rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, if you have suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like us to spoil in the future or other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer today was Morgan Flannery. For Rachel Syme, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.